It's January 13, 1910, and the internationally renowned Italian tenor Enrico Caruso is about to take the stage at the Metropolitan Opera House in New York City. He has performed at the Met many times before, but this night is different from all the others. Caruso is about to participate in a historic experiment. For the first time, Caruso's voice will not only be heard by the 3,600 people in the theater, it will also be heard by people listening from miles away. Caruso is about to perform on the first ever public radio broadcast. The man behind the experiment is a 36-year-old serial inventor named Lee DeForest. DeForest has long been intrigued by the idea of transmitting sound wirelessly. And, as a great lover of opera, he dreams of introducing people to the best performers in the world. DeForest is able to convince the opera's director to let him hang two microphones over the stage, connecting it to a transmitter in the attic, and then string an antenna on the roof of the building. But who will listen? In 1910, there were no radios in New York. So DeForest has to set up receivers on ships in New York Harbor, at large hotels in Times Square, and several other locations around town. When Caruso walks on stage, DeForest flips the switch, and the rest is history. It would take another decade before radio would become an indispensable part of American life. But on that cold winter night, Lee DeForest provided a fleeting glimpse of what was possible. A hundred and ten years later, radio continues to survive and thrive. Over the past several years, its power and influence has been amplified over the Internet, using a technology that even a visionary like Lee DeForest could likely never imagine. That technology is the podcast. I'm Walter Isaacson, and you're listening to Trailblazers an original podcast from Dell Technologies. Coming to us out of the sky, the best the world has to offer in music, drama, and comedy may be enjoyed in one's own home. With regular programs in the public interest, questions of the day are discussed, entertainment, information, and cheer. From any place, at any time. It took nearly 10 years, a world war, and many technical refinements before radio was ready to become a truly mass medium. By 1924, there were 530 stations on the air in America. And by 1930, about two-thirds of Americans had radios in their home. And there were more than a million cars on the road that were equipped with radios. 
and those listeners were treated to an impressively diverse range of programming. So imagine yourself in Chicago uh, in the mid-1920s. This is Derek Valiant. He's a professor of communications and media at the University of Michigan. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. You would have access both to uh, networked programs, that is to say, programs carried by the National Broadcasting Company, uh, NBC, or uh, CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting Service. And that would feature, in the evening, live concerts from jazz clubs, would feature nationally known entertainers, comics. You would have access to sports broadcasts, the news, of course. But you could also listen to a local community broadcast in Swedish or German or Polish. So it was a quite diverse uh, access point for Americans. Radio's rapid rise presented challenges for both those trying to regulate it and those trying to make money off of it. In the early days of radio, an aspiring broadcaster simply had to write to the Commerce Department in Washington to request a license. They would be assigned a frequency and told when they could broadcast. And that was about it when it came to regulation. So this uh, did create uh, opportunities for innovation. Uh, It also created uh, occasions for some real abuse. Back in the 1920s and early 30s, radio uh, was very lively and important as a community service, but it also was a place for some uh, eccentrics, uh, loudmouths. And uh, so the way to respond, if you were a listener, was to complain to the station or right away to Washington. So it was a, a bit of a wild, wild west situation. And uh, eventually uh, there were enough complaints that Congress responded by creating uh, the Federal Communications Commission. The FCC was created in 1934. It was welcomed by companies that had investments in radio and wanted to make sure that the programs they broadcast did not alienate large segments of the public. But it was hard for those independent stations to make money, and eventually they began to consolidate into networks like NBC which allowed programs on these independent stations to reach a national audience. Radio in the 1930s and 40s also provided news, radio plays, detective shows, soap operas, children's programming, and live play-by-play sports broadcasts to a nation struggling through economic depression and war. But by the late 1940s, radio's supremacy was challenged by a remarkable new technology, television. Popular radio shows started appearing on television, leaving recorded music as the mainstay of radio programming. Predictions of radio's demise were everywhere, and those predictions may well have come true were it not for the work of some scientists working out of the Bell Labs in the late 1940s. Until then, radio signals were still being strengthened and amplified using vacuum tubes. But after the war, Bell scientists started experimenting with transistor technology. And eventually, it was adapted 
for radio. Transistor technology was truly a transformative innovation for the medium. Suddenly, the radio became a, a portable device. It had been a mobile device in cars from uh, decades earlier, but suddenly you have young consumers with uh, transistor radios in their hands, uh, spinning the dial, looking for uh, fun music to listening to, encountering rock and roll, and taking the radio with them uh, to parties, to the beach, uh, out of the home where radio had been kind of centered and therefore controlled by uh, parents and patriarchs into another domain. The transistor and rock and roll helped propel radio's popularity in the 1950s and 60s. By the turn of the century, radio station ownership in the U.S. was concentrated in the hands of a few large media companies. And although public radio continued to offer a broad range of quality programming, many listeners felt commercial stations had become too formulaic and ripe for disruption. It's September 25th, 2001, and a company called XM Radio is about to launch two broadcast satellites into space. What did they decide to call their satellites? Rock and roll. Within a few months, XM started the first national digital satellite radio service. It was followed in 2002 by a second national service run by a company called Sirius Satellite Radio. Satellite radio had several advantages over terrestrial radio. Its programs could be heard across the continent. And because funding was based on a subscription model, much of it was ad-free. And, perhaps most importantly, FCC regulations did not apply to satellite radio. That last point was crucial. In 2004, Sirius Radio was able to lure Howard Stern, America's most popular shock jock, away from his home station. They offered Stern an unprecedented five-year deal worth an estimated $500 million. During his years on FM radio, Stern was fined more than $2 million by the FCC for broadcasting what it considered to be indecent material. That would no longer be an issue on satellite radio. In 2008, XM and Sirius Radio merged into Sirius XM, and today it remains the only satellite radio company in the U.S., But satellite radio also had its downsides. For the first time, listening was no longer free. But what if there were a technology that allowed you to tune in to any program in the world for free, anytime, day or night, on a device that you already had in your pocket? What if there was a technology that allowed you to be a creator as well as a listener? Well, that technology is now here, and it's called podcasting. My name is Dave Weiner, and uh, that's how you should identify me, a blogger and a software developer. 
Yeah, that's what I do. <laughs> it's not very impressive, my, you know, but that's what I do. There are lots of people who identify themselves as bloggers and software developers, but very few have a resume with David Weiner's credentials. In 1994, he wrote what is widely considered to be one of the first blog posts. He also wrote the software that made blogging accessible to everyone. And as if being the blog father isn't impressive enough, 10 years later, Weiner added the title Podfather to his list of credits. He developed the software that made podcasting possible. His unlikely collaborator was an MTV VJ named Adam Curry. We were at his hotel suite in Manhattan um, in December 2001, and we were hanging out. Um, Adam was using my blogging software, which was called uh, Manila, and he had this idea about using the network for audio and video, and you could have a piece of software that subscribed to a feed, basically, of audio or video, and it would download the fresh stuff overnight, and then it would be sitting there waiting for you when you got in, and there wouldn't be any limit on the quality of the audio or the video. And he had to say it like eight times before it sunk in. I thought, well, that's actually a really interesting idea. So Dave Weiner went back to California and started working on Adam Curry's idea. Finally, on June 11, 2004, Dave Weiner recorded himself reading his daily blog post. Then he posted it online. It's now considered to be the first podcast. For David Weiner, podcasting was a natural extension of the democratic ethos that lay behind his passion for blogging. See, what I had wanted all along was that it should be something that anybody could do, that it wouldn't require a lot of special expertise and a lot of hardware and a lot of, you know, very technical software. It just should be easy. And ever since then, it's just been growing. Every year it gets bigger and bigger, and it's been one of the most gratifying things imaginable, actually. From those humble beginnings, podcasting has emerged as perhaps the most significant new media of the early part of the 21st century. There are more than a million podcasts to choose from, ranging from the Joe Rogan Experience, with about 200 million monthly downloads, to podcasts heard only by a select group of family and friends. There's likely not been this much interest in audio storytelling since the golden age of radio. It's a development that Julie Shapiro witnessed from the front row. In 2000, she co-founded the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. The festival is an annual celebration of the best storytelling to be found on radio. But podcasts were not on her horizon until a chance encounter in 2008. I do remember hearing the word podcast for the first time. We were at another public radio conference, and I'll never forget 
um, a, an independent producer started talking about this new technology and how great it would be and how all of a sudden it would sort of unlock opportunities for producers to tell all kinds of stories. But we really had no idea what was coming. In 2011, for the first time, a podcast beat all its radio competitors and won the Gold Award at the Third Coast Festival. And then, four years later, Shapiro became the executive producer of the Radiotopia Podcast Network. Radiotopia is a collection of almost 30 independent, cutting-edge podcasts with about 19 million monthly downloads. It's given her a unique vantage point as radio producers have worked to adapt to the new medium. It was a while before we felt producers were starting to push the boundaries of what they could do through the freedom of podcasting. A lot of early podcasts just sounded exactly like radio shows that people had worked on. So I think there was a long period of experimentation where the courage and then the, the desire to push boundaries and try new things with the form and then find an audience for that. It took a little while for that to catch on. Some of the most popular shows on public radio in the United States such as This American Life, were the first to embrace the idea of making their shows available online as a podcast. But before This American Life and others like it became hit podcasts, many people first discovered them on the FM dial. There was a day when I was delivering pizza. Uh, that's how I paid my way through college. I had like five orders in the car, and I was listening to This American Life, actually. This is Ben Calhoun. He's a producer on This American Life. And so it was just in the middle of, of that story, and my brakes went out. Cell phones weren't as ubiquitous as they are now, and I didn't have one. And so I was sort of stranded on the side of the road with no brakes and five orders and no way to call the store, no way to... <laughs> figure out what I was going to do, but all I wanted was to hear what happened next on that radio story. And it was sort of sitting in that car that I I just realized, I don't know how the people make this thing that's coming through the radio right now, but, but that is what I want to do. However they make what this is, I want to make that. This American Life was created in 1995 by Ira Glass. And the show is often credited for ushering in both the public radio and storytelling podcast revolutions. But no single event changed the podcast landscape more dramatically than a show that was launched in 2014. That show is Serial. In the podcasting world, there's before Serial and after Serial. Serial was produced by the team behind This American Life. The first season of Serial told the true story of a Baltimore teenager in prison for a murder he said that he did not commit. The story unfolds over 12 episodes and takes the listener on a journey to determine this teen's guilt or innocence. Ben Calhoun was also a producer on the Serial podcast, and he thinks the podcast creators were able to think beyond the constraints of radio storytelling. I was 
at the staff retreat when we were talking about what podcasting was changing in terms of narrative shows like ours. And Julie Snyder and Sarah Koenig, who created Serial, were talking about what it was that they were kind of interested in doing. And the thing that they were referencing was Netflix and how you can jump from one episode and go immediately to listening to the next episode and the next episode and the next episode. So you could actually create a much larger format show where people could listen as long as they wanted to and stop when they needed to. Um, but you would build propulsively from one episode to the next one. And I feel like, I mean, it's even in the name of the show that they created. And that was what they had their eye on. A month after its release, Serial became the fastest podcast in iTunes history to reach 5 million downloads. The public radio roots of podcasting remain strong. National Public Radio is one of the leading podcast publishers in the country. But after the surprising success of Serial, many commercial media outlets and advertisers began to realize that the potential audience for podcasts was much larger than they had previously thought. Marshall Williams is the founder and CEO of the radio advertising agency Ad Results Media, and he saw a potential audience for podcasts earlier than a lot of other people. In the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, many of his big clients began reducing costs by firing some of their high-priced on-air talent. One of the casualties was a popular DJ named Adam Carolla on station KLSX in Los Angeles, Marshall Williams. Adam Carolla was doing mornings at KLSX. He wanted to keep doing an audio show, so he simply went home and started doing his the equivalent of his radio program from his garage, literally his garage. And I read about it in Fast Company magazine. I read about Adam doing this new thing. You know, his radio program is going to be digitally delivered and on demand and so on and so forth. So Marshall Williams tracked down Adam Carolla and made him an offer he couldn't refuse. And so I said, I want to advertise on Adam's show. We ran the ads and we thought it would be fairly small. Well, it generated results that were about 20x what we thought they might be. And we were like, wow, what is going on here? There are all these people out there listening to a digitally delivered, on-demand program. And they responded to these ads in mass. That's really what got our company invested in the podcast space. Today, podcasters have more intimate knowledge about their audiences than ever before. Podcast platforms such as Apple Podcasts and Spotify Tell podcasters and advertisers when people skip certain parts of a podcast and where they tune out altogether. These are incredibly useful data points because this information can help with things like a show's editorial direction. Podcast platforms can also target listeners with specific advertisements. With terrestrial radio, everyone listening to the same show hears the same ads. But today, People listening to the same podcast hear ads based on their individual listening history and other information that is unique to them. Next year, 
podcast advertising revenue is expected to reach the billion-dollar mark, and Marshall Williams's Ad Results Media is among the biggest players in the space. But advertising is only one part of the new economy of podcasting. Today's podcast boom has brought some big players with very deep pockets into the industry. Just last month, the New York Times bought the production company behind the serial podcast. And in 2019, music streaming giant Spotify paid $230 million to purchase the podcast company Gimlet Media. And earlier this year, Spotify also paid an estimated $100 million for exclusive rights to the Joe Rogan Experience podcast. Deals of that magnitude will inevitably lead to new business models where advertising becomes just one of the many revenue sources. I'm very focused now on on figuring out the non-advertising revenue. This is my friend Jake Weisberg. He's the CEO of the podcast company Pushkin Industries. He co-founded his company in 2018 with author and podcast host Malcolm Gladwell. I think ultimately media businesses that depend exclusively on advertising don't tend to be sustainable businesses or businesses that are healthy over the long term. So I think it's very important for if podcasting is going to become an industry that's viable over the long term, that it figures out how to get revenue from listeners as well as from advertisers. The shift away from advertising has already begun. Some podcasts are now funded by listeners through platforms such as Patreon. Luminary, a $100 million startup launched last year, has recruited some celebrity hosts and put their podcast behind a subscription paywall. And then there's platforms such as Spotify. Like Sirius with Howard Stern, Spotify is using Joe Rogan as leverage to say to his listeners, if you want to keep listening to this thing that you love, you have to do it on Spotify. You're not going to be able to hear Joe Rogan on an Apple Podcasts after September, I think, or on any other app. And then presumably, if you're listening to him on Spotify, you'll want to listen to other podcasts on Spotify. So Spotify, starting from a very small base in terms of its listenership, is making these very, very bold moves, acquiring big uh, audiences and big podcast companies or big in the world of podcasting to say that this is, this is central to their, to their strategy as a company. Whether the big bets that companies such as Spotify have made on podcasting will eventually pay off remains to be seen. Some critics worry that the trend towards exclusive content placed behind paywalls is incompatible with the democratic impulse that drove Dave Weiner to develop podcast software 16 years ago. But Weiner is not one of those critics. When he surveys the landscape today, with a million podcasts and more being added every day, he still sees the universe unfolding exactly as he hoped it would. Nobody needs permission 
to publish a podcast. You know how at the end of podcasts, they say, um, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, right? I mean, that's like a piece of boilerplate. You hear it everywhere. That tells you that the medium hasn't been owned yet. And it's amazing how long it's, it's survived that way. I'm Walter Isaacson, and you've been listening to Trailblazers, an original podcast by Dell Technologies. Thanks for listening.